Good afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Summich, a priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, bringing you this program from the Auckland Diocese in New Zealand. Let's begin today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So welcome once again to A Catholic Opinion. Once again, uh, as we have done in past weeks, I'm going to be continuing with the history of the Catholic Church with the time of the reunion after the Great Schism. We'll pick up from there. But first of all, a couple of quick notes, a reminder that the Fraternity of St. Peter operating here in the Auckland Diocese under the auspices of the uh, Bishop of Auckland, the invitation of Bishop of Auckland, Patrick Dunn, and we have the, an apostolate for the Latin Mass and all the sacraments in the traditional form within the Church. And uh, a large number of activities that you can join into. Everybody's welcome to come along. Our Sunday Masses are at St. Paul's College. That's the old St. Paul's College in Richmond Road in Ponsonby at 9 o'clock on Sundays. And it's a traditional Latin Mass, sung Mass with Gregorian chant. And our daily Masses or masses throughout the week are at St. Anne's Chapel in Tiaratu South. So you can find all, our deta- all the details about our Masses and confession times and catechism classes and marriage prep, etc. on our website, fssp.nz or at our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. So please come on along, have a look at the website, have a look at the Facebook page and feel free to contact um, me if you want any other information on any other things that we are working with. So as I said, we're going to carry on with our history of Christendom and last week we were at a, an incredible um, event in the church in the year of 1415 uh, whereby the heretic Hus had refused the mercy offered to him by the emperor and had decided that he would hold on to his heretical ways and therefore he was sentenced to death, handed over to the secular arm and burned at the stake. As a result of this, there was a great uproar in his home country of what is now Czechoslovakia. And at one stage, Nicholas of Dresden in Bohemia, the Germans, some of the Germans had also joined in in the protest, published a pamphlet that set the tone for the uprising, the famous Hus uprising. He said the following, Now, alas, the secular rulers of Christendom are occupied with their own dissensions, weighed down by greed, blinded by sensual indulgence, hemmed in by other vices. They do not pay attention to the great corruption of the Church of Christ, but rather protect, promote, and even foster priests who are simoniac, heretic, and greedy, hateful to God and useless to prince and people. O Lord, will I live to see that blessed hour when the whore of revelations will be stripped bare and her flesh consumed by the fire of tribulation." So this could, of any certain day, this could have been Kelvin or Knox or Oliver Cromwell speaking. The great and terrible cleaving that was to to sunder most of Christian Europe in the 16th century came to Bohemia a century earlier, that in the 15th. But Bohemia was a small country, though its people were to prove themselves mighty warriors. 
It was cut off from the heartlands of Europe by its language, which few but fellow Slavs understood. And the only Slavs with whom the Bohemian Czechs were in direct contact were, were the Poles, for whom the memory of Queen Jadwiga was too fresh and the converts' devotion to King Jagiello too strong to permit them to be drawn into this revolutionary firestorm. So, the searing religious conflict remained confined to Bohemia and adjacent Moravia. Their neighbours saw the Hussites only as raiders, not as evangelists. This limits the importance of the struggle for a history of Christendom, but it cannot be overlooked. It was too clarion a warning of the vast religious wars that were to come, a warning that was not heeded, and it has a vivid intrinsic drama of its own. Though we are hampered in seeing it from the Catholic viewpoint by the obvious and flagrant bias in favour of the Hussites in almost all sources available on it, especially in this century, with the possible exception of the Hungarians. Hussites clearly knew what they were against. But what were they for? Jakubek of Stribro, a master at the University of Prague, widely considered to have inherited Huss's theological mantle, tried to formulate it in various writings in the year 1416. Most fundamental, communion in both kinds for the laity. How strange to find this doctrine, especially in the light of its Catholic history practice and thought the foundation of a militant heresy with all who did not accept it condemned as heretics rejection of the church hierarchy leaving a kind of congregational structure of religious authority dominated by charismatic preachers condemnation of possession of wealth and property by the church downgrading of devotion to imagers Permission to say Mass frequently or even regularly outside of church buildings. Mass in the vernacular. Some Hussites accepted all of these doctrines and more. Others, only some of them, insistence on communion in both kinds for the laity was the one positive doctrine that united them all. In October of 1416, Bishop John the Iron of Littismill, Legate, of the Council for Bohemia and Moravia published after a long delay the Council's formal condemnation of reception of communion in both kinds by the laity. There was, there, there was it's necessary to reiterate this, no theological objection to this practice insofar as it was heretical. It was so only in those who insisted that such communion was essential to salvation or that anyone who refused to give it or receive it was himself a heretic. So we have to understand the idea of communion under both kinds, which is so widespread in the Latin church in the 20th and 20, second half of the 20th and all of the 21st century. There's nothing heretical in it. It's not injurious. However, the Hussites were maintaining that it was essential to one's salvation to receive both the precious blood and the body of our Lord. And if one did not do so, one was a heretic. And so the Catholic Church condemned this entirely and said that communion can only be received under one kind. It's almost like a kickback against this ideal. 
Uh, both sides had already become prisoners of symbolism on the, on the issue. The chalice for the laity had become a symbol for religious revolution. And the church for years refused to yield in the face of fiercely defiant challenge to its right to prescribe who might receive the chalice and under what conditions. After all, the church is the arbiter and the protector of the liturgy, and so she can make these rules as she sees fit. And especially when we see so much abuse around the chalice in the 21st century, spillages, common spillages, uh, a lack of reverence around the precious blood, we can see why the church dug her toes in. By 1417, differences were already emerging among the Hussites. The inevitable result throughout all the history of the church of rejecting the authority of the Pope and the hierarchy. With no common source of religious authority, human nature does not permit any considerable group of men to agree entirely for long on religious issues. Divisions appeared within the University of Prague and between university masters and the popular preachers who tended to be more radical on such questions as the value of intercession of the saints and prayers for the dead, the existence of purgatory, the desirability of honouring images and relics of the saints and giving communion in both kinds to babies and small children. If such communion was essential to salvation, as many Hussites insisted, they then could and did logically conclude that it must be administered even to those too young to understand it. But for the moment, these divisions would still disappear when the Hussites faced a challenge from outside their community. In March of 1417, the Archdiocese of Prague, which had refused to ordain any Hussite priests since the publication of the decree against Utraquism, began action to deprive existing Hussite priests of their parishes. The then Hussite Lord Chenek of Wartenberg arrested Auxiliary Bishop Hermann of Prague and forced him to ordain several of the most radical Hussites as priests, probably including John Chapek, author of the wholly unauthorised vernacular Czech Mass. Archbishop Conrad at once condemned these forced ordinations, removed Bishop Herman and declared the ordinations null and void. In January, Archbishop Conrad had refused to allow the University of Prague to grant decrees until further notice. The university consequently closed ranks more tightly with the Hussites and imprisoned one of its own professors, Peter of Unichov, a strong critic of Utraquism. They tortured him and threatened him with death until he recanted his views in the main hall of the university and issued a statement declaring John Hus free from error. Hearing of all of this in the summer of 1417, the Council of Constance suspended the University of Prague from all functions. Well might Emperor Sigismund write to the clergy of Bohemia in September of 1417, and I quote him, quote, the divine services are profaned, and the obedient clergy are compelled to profane them. Those who have been excommunicated and interdicted are tolerated and protected in contempt of the keys of the church. Rectors of parish churches and other beneficed clergy are disgracefully expelled from their benefices by the power and ferocity of laymen. Indeed, some of these clergymen have been hurt and are imprisoned by laymen. They are cruelly tortured and payments are forced out of them. Horrible to say, moreover, 
Catholic preachers and also certain masters preaching and teaching the Catholic faith are forced by tortures, torments and neuronic persecutions to abjure the Catholic faith that they have preached and taught, unquote. In February 22 of 1418, Pope Martin V issued the bull Inter Cunctas, formally condemning the heresies of John Wycliffe and John Hus and the doctrine of Utraquism held in Bohemia. In its last sessions, the Council of Constance and the new Pope Martin V demanded strong and immediate action to crush the Hussite revolution, action that Sigismund's brother Venceslaus, the king of Bohemia, was most reluctant to take believing that the majority of Czechs would vigorously oppose any such attempt. Though Venceslaus himself was no Hussite, so far as is known, his wife Sophia clearly was. In February of 1419, she was cited by the new papal legate in Bohemia, Bishop Ferdinand of Lucena, to appear before him to answering, to answer for expelling and persecuting Catholic pastors, introducing and favouring Hussite priests, and allowing her officials to do likewise. Meanwhile, in December 1418, Sigismund published an open letter urging his brother to act at once to crush the heresy and threatening him with all spiritual and military church sanctions if he continued inactive. Both sides were rushing toward a maximal confrontation. In 1419 and 1420, the Hussites were going far beyond Utraquism. On Easter, thousands of them received communion in the open on a little mountain near Bechine in southern Bohemia, which they called Tabor. They rejected the Catholic Church openly, condemning all its traditional rites and ceremonies, including the use of holy water and oils, consecrated chalices, priestly vestments, all feast days except Sunday, all fasts, auricular confession, prayers to the saints, devotion to the holy images. The church fathers were largely rejected, purgatory was denied, prayers for the dead were held useless, and missiles were destroyed. Many of these Taborites became convinced that the second coming of Christ would occur in 1420. On July 30, 1419, following a violent sermon by the priest John Zielewski, Quoting numerous scriptural passages about killing and overthrow, thousands of Hussites massed in the streets of Prague seized the Church of St. Stephen, then stormed the town hall and threw 13 councillors and other officials out of the windows, killing them. The long, ineffective and alcoholic Venceslaus, facing the most terrifying challenge to his rule, all-out revolution by an armed and murderous mob of thousands sent a desperate message to his brother Sigismund to come and help him, then collapsed and he died of a stroke. Goodness me. Um, This seems to be, this throwing out the window, the first uh, instance of this curious method of murder became a dark national tradition in Bohemia. Defenestration. Another defense defenestration of Prague launched the Thirty Years' War in 1618, though on that occasion the defenestrated ones survived by landing on a pile of manure. Goodness me. And yet another, this one fatal, seems to have been performed on Czech Foreign Minister Jan Masaryk by the Communists when they seized control of Czechoslovakia in 1948 to crush the Czech uprising. The rampaging victorious Hussites began seizing monasteries all over Bohemia, at first merely burning their buildings, later burning the monks they found within the walls as well. Churches were assaulted and damaged or destroyed. 
Emperor Sigismund, brother and thence heir of the childless Venceslaus, sent a message to Prague earlier in, in October 1419 demanding that the destruction of churches and monasteries cease and the expelled monks and nuns be restored and that unauthorised congregations break up, but expressing a willingness to tolerate both Catholic and Utraquist communion for the time being. The new city officials of Prague agreed to stop the destruction of images, churches and monasteries if Utraquus communion were permitted. At Christmas, their representatives went to meet the emperor in Brno, capital of Moravia, where they knelt in personal homage to him, asked his forgiveness for the rebellion in Prague and promised to dismantle their fortifications and protect Catholics returning to the city. Many of the most influential Hussites in Prague, including most of the masters at the University of Prague and Jakubek of Stribno, Stribro in particular, had recoiled from the demon of revolution they had conjured up and in the opening months of 1420 showed themselves willing to carry out the agreement they had made with Sigismund. While this did not mean that they were ready to return to the Catholic Church, a concession on communion in both kinds purely a prudential policy decision which the church could easily have made might have brought many of them soon to do so. The Taborites feared or even expected this. But the church was unwilling to make this concession for 13 years. First, there had to be trial by battle. Whatever the magistrates and university masters of Prague might have done, left to themselves, the Taborites had put far from them any thought of submission or compromise. Since the world had not ended at the beginning of 1420, as many of them had predicted, they prepared to fight to the finish in the world they had. On Ash Wednesday, they seized the fortified town of Sizimovo Usti, where its defenders were sleeping off the Mardi Gras debauch and quickly built up its fortifications and those of an abandoned castle on a nearby hill until the complex became for them a new tabor, with thousands of them moved to create a new city. On March the 1st, Pope Martin V proclaimed a crusade against the Hussites at Empress Sigismund's request. Sigismund had the proclamation read out in the main square of Breslau, capital of Silesia, where he was then staying, burnt a local Hussite named John Krasa at the stake and declared that any Hussite caught in Bohemia would meet the same terrible death. In immediate response, the Hussites of Prague united with the Taborites to form a Hussite union with an army and issued a manifesto including what later became known as the Four Articles, cornerstones of Hussite doctrine. One, administration of communion of both kinds to the laity. Two, that the word of God be freely, publicly and truthfully preached by those whose concern is to preach. Three, that all civil dominion be taken away from the clergy. And four, that the faithful should repress all public sins. It's not clear why Sigismund did not then make a greater effort to split the more conservative Prague Hussites from the Taborites. But he tended to be an impulsive man and had apparently come to the conclusion, not then altogether unwarranted, that as a group they were impossible to deal with. But his decision marked the beginning of a war to the death, a war of no quarter, since each side regarded the other as resolved in its own elimination. A new Hussite manifesto issued in Prague in April of 1420 renounced all obedience to Emperor Sigismund as a great and cruel enemy of the Bohemian realm and nationality because he had launched a crusade against its people, violated his safe conduct for John Hus and burned John Krasser in Breslau. 
At almost the same time, a Tuberite army commanded by John Zizka captured the castle of Sedlec, residence of Lord Ulrich of Usti, killed Ulrich with all his retainers and told a group of six other prisoners that if any one of them was prepared to decapitate the other five, his life would be spared and that he would be taken into their army. One volunteered to do exactly that and did it. When entering Bohemia in May, Sigismund demanded the unconditional surrender of Prague. The city leaders not surprisingly refused and they called on John Zizka for help. And so, in this dark spring of 1420 in the fair land of Bohemia, there comes into history like a thunderstorm this grim and terrible figure, unique in the history of warfare. For all the striking resemblances he bears to Oliver Cromwell 200 years later, like many men of his time, he had no surname. In his youth, he called himself John of Troknov for the village where his family held a small freehold and where he was born. He lost an eye in a fight as a boy and for the rest of his life wore a patch over it. Hence, he was nicknamed Zizka, which in Czech means one-eyed. After he became famous as a Hussite general, he signed himself John of the Chalice. But to his men... And to the world, he was simply one-eyed John. And so he will be called in the rest of this history. Though he remains little known outside of his native Czech Republic, one-eyed John was one of the greatest generals in all of history. The evidence of his military genius might well seem fabulous were it not so well attested historically. He was confronted at the outset of the Hussite Wars with the apparently insoluble problem of how to fight well-armed and armoured knightly cavalry with armies which included only very small contingents of horse and archers, the majority of his soldiers being peasants who had nothing to bring with them to battle but clubs and threshing flails. But many peasants had available one means of transportation other than their two feet, wooden carts. One-Eyed John made their wooden carts into war wagons, protected by the addition of heavy boards and carrying the primitive artillery of his time. Gunpowder had been in use since the middle of the previous century, but the guns were so heavy and unwieldy that no one had yet thought of using them for anything but battering walled cities and castles from fixed positions. One-Eyed John invented field artillery. The wagons brought the guns into action offensively or withdrew defensively into a circle almost impossible for even heavy cavalry to penetrate. In a mechanised age, drawing the wagons into a circle had become a joke. But in a pre-mechanised age, it worked. One-Eyed John invented it as a battle tactic. It never failed him, and he never lost a single battle. As a commander and a combatant, he was relentless and he was pitiless. Like all great generals, his objective was always not simply to defeat, but to destroy the enemy army. And more than once, he accomplished just that. Like all great generals, he never rested, but was always on the move. The war in which he fought was a war to the death, and he never forgot it. The ghastly scene at Sedlec Castle was typical for him. He killed his prisoners, unless he thought he could exchange them for some of his men, or hold them for a high ransom. Captured priests and monks he burnt alive, since that was the penalty he saw their kind as having inflicted on Hus and his followers. But... Be this much said of for one-eyed John, there is no record that he ever harmed a woman or a child. And his standing orders were that all of them in every captured city, town and castle were to be spared. 
square built, square jawed, massive, tireless, with an iron constitution. One eyed John was almost 60 years old when he marched to the aid of threatened Prague in the spring of 1420. Sigismund's men held the two great castles of Prague, Ratkani and Vishirad, but the Hussites held the main part of the city, fortified separately from the castles. And John occupied and fortified the strategic heights of Vitkov Ridge. After repulsing a major assault by the Imperial Crusading Army on July 14, he counterattacked from the top of the hill down the slope with irresistible enthusiasm and determination, winning the first of his many great victories. But the Catholic Lords of Bohemia, now in considerable numbers, horrified by the excesses of the Taborites, defiantly crowned Sigismund, King of Bohemia, in St. Vitus Cathedral on Hradkini Hill, the struggle would continue. The hatred deepened. Nicholas of Pelrimov, whom the Hussites now recognised as their sole bishop, condemned the Blessed Virgin Mary because devotion to her made many people think they would not be damned even if they ought to be. Divisions among the Hussites soon reached the point where One-Eyed John was sent out to burn members of their dissident sects as he burned Catholic priests and religious. Some of Sigismund's commanders slaughtered 700 Taborite prisoners in northern Bohemia in March 1421, half of them by burning. Taborites retaliated by killing 1,400 Catholics at Chomotov in the northwest. When Jaromir in northern Bohemia fell to the Hussites, 24 priests were captured and were offered their lives if they affirmed the Hussite four articles. No less than 21 of them refused and died at the stake as martyrs. Neither Sigismund nor John was present for these atrocities, but if they had been, they might not have shrunk from them. In June of 1421, a joint Diet of Bohemia and Moravia at Chuslov formally declared independence from Emperor Sigismund and affirmed the four articles of the Hussites as national as the national religion, with both Taborites and the more cons- con- conservative ultraquists equally accepted. One-eyed John was one of the signatories. Archbishop Conrad of Prague betrayed his faith and joined the Hussites. Emperor Sigismund declared in response that these men were revolutionaries who had roused the whole of Christendom against this kingdom. The Diet at Chuslav finished its work on June 7. One-eyed John, ever on the move, hurried across Bohemia to lay siege to the strong castle of Rabi in the southwest. As he scouted its walls, searching for a weak place, an archer upon the battlements took careful aim at the stocky figure of the great general. The arrow struck him in the right eye, the only one he had, and one-eyed John was blind. Medieval soldiers not often recover from arrows in the eye, even when they had two. Harold, the last of the Saxon kings, died from an arrow in the eye at the Battle of Hastings. But one-eyed John, though deathly ill for two months, incredibly recovered. It would seem incredible were it not repeatedly and explicitly attested by several independent Czech sources for the period, but one-eyed John, despite being totally blind, resumed command of his army after that two-month convalescence and continued to win victories. The only blind general in recorded history. Sent to the northwestern border of Bohemia adjacent to the German state of Mason, where a German army had just won a major victory over a Hussite army led by the priest-politician 
John Zielewski of Prague, One-Eyed John scattered the Germans simply by the terror of his name. There was no battle. In October, the same thing happened. Germans besieging Jatek when he advanced towards them in so great a hurry to escape that a devastating fire broke out in their camp and tents and the garrison sallied to inflict some 2,000 casualties before John had even arrived. In November, with only 2,000 men, he forced to retreat from the area of Pilsen in western Bohemia by large enemy forces. John circled his war wagons on Vladar Hill and after holding fast for three days and two nights, counterattacked in the middle of the third night, doing so much damage that Sigismund's forces were unable to pursue. And in December, surrounded by Sigismund's main force near the important city of Kuntahora, Kutnahora, John broke out successively with his wagons, rolling and artillery firing between midnight and dawn. So One-Eyed John won two battles by assaults launched in the darkest hours of the night, tactics well suited to a blind general. And in January of 1422, he went on to drive Sigismund's army out of Bohemia entirely into Moravia, storming the fortified town of Nemetsky Brod near the frontier and mercilessly sacking it, though as usual, sparing the women and the children. And so, it's all we have time for today about this incredible General One-Eyed John, merciless as he was, but definitely goes down in history as a great uh, military leader. So, we're almost out of time, so let's conclude today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So thank you for joining in with us uh, this afternoon. We hope to have you back here next week. Remember to look at our website, fssp.nz, or our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. And I hope you have a happy and holy weekend, this weekend of Pentecost, and hope to see you perhaps in church on Sunday. God bless. Your language on planetaudio.org.